Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest glorious collaboration between the Empire Film Podcast, that's the official name of the podcast, which I never say, and the Pilot TV Podcast in association with Disney+. Plus. First, we walked with the dead. That was The Walking Dead. Then we got all kinds of dope sick with dope sick. Again, that's the name of the show. Then we dropped in with the drop out. Now we have assembled the ultimate empire and pilot panel to talk about a new Disney Plus show. Never mind the bollocks. Here's Pistol, Danny Boyle's eagerly awaited six-part snapshot of how the Sex Pistols roared into life and how the advent of punk, not just punk music, but the very attitude that inspired a rebellion across music, fashion, politics, sex, and even comedy, woke Britain up from its late 70s stupor. And joining me, speaking of stupor, to to, to discuss the show are two of the biggest punks I know, James Dyer. Hello, Chris. Hello, James. How are you? I'm feeling very punk today. I can see you've you've yes. done your hair all punky. <laughs> <laughs> you put a you put a, a safety pin through your nose just yeah. for the safe just for the show, and I, I, I admire that. I admire your commitment. Uh, and we're also joined. My word, this is a, a global podcast indeed. Uh, James is in his house. I'm in my house. We're both in England. Not Beth Webb. Oh no, <laughs> Beth's in Cannes. Hello, in France. Yes. In Hello, France, Beth. no less. Bon, bonjour to you. Bonjour, France. Bonjour, bonjour, Beth. How is the Cannes Film Festival? Yeah, it's a lot. It's an awful <laughs> lot. Uh, <laughs> you can't half-ass Cannes is the, uh, <laughs> the official slogan. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, so it's very exciting. I'm very happy to be here. Seen lots of good stuff. Okay. Um, is good your, your Cannes half full or half empty? Uh, right now, half like mostly empty. I'm just coasting off. You're on fumes. Yeah, just just coasting off the sheer adrenaline of of the sweet movies. <laughs> <laughs> the sweet movies, the cinema de la plage, yes. as they say. But uh, listen, anyway, we're not here to talk about the Cannes Film Festival. We're here to talk about Pistol. And first off, we're going to hear from two of the stars of the show because Pistol isn't just about the Sex Pistols. It's also about the incredible band of pioneers and visionaries who were drawn to the energy generated by the Sex Pistols. People like Vivian Westwood, Chrissy Hind, the pioneering provocateur model Jordan, not that one, and their manager, the flamboyant Malcolm McLaren. The latter two are played by Maisie Williams and Thomas Brody Sangster, respectively, and I spoke to them both, well, this morning as we're recording this, in a top. London Hotel in an actual face-to-face interview. I had a lot of fun talking to them. We started off by talking about an unusual encounter that Maisie had with Andy Serkis at the Empire Awards a few years ago. So just a little bit of context there for when it comes up towards the end of the interview. Here we go. Maisie Williams and Thomas Brody Sangster, the stars of Pistol. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast and Pilot TV Podcast, it's a crossover, uh, by two of the stars of Danny Boyle's Pistol, Thomas Brody Sangster, Maisie Williams. Welcome both. How are you both? Thank you. Doing well. Thank yes. You. Excited. Yeah, well. This is it. Finally, you know, the, the fruit of all your labors is out there this week for people to see. Yeah, absolutely. It's always the exciting bit. Yeah, very yeah. exciting. I think it only comes alive once. I mean, it's made for an audience. It's not made for us. So once the audience get in and start seeing it, that's when it kind of really comes to life. You know, I have to ask, it's, it's such an obvious question, but this is uh, a, such a specific show, delving into such a specific moment in time in a British culture. How well-versed in the Sex Pistols and the wider culture surrounding them 
were you when this show came around? Yeah, really not at all. <laughs> really? Um, but, you know, we're just so grateful that there was so much to discover and learn with it being such recent history. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, just we had an incredible team who had all of the archive footage of just like, you know, the London in the 70s, but everything with the pistols and all of, you know, Jordan, the sack, uh, the shop, sex, Vivian Westwood, so on and so forth. So just, you know, had everything to discover like a child in a play a sandbox play pit S- sand. play play box child in a chocolate factory <laughs> play, play sand play sand yes yeah. play sand <laughs> what about you Thomas I mean apart from maybe say John Lydon appearing on I'm a Celebrity I don't think the Sex Pistols I didn't watch that. have Wait, done he that he was much. on I'm a Celebrity he yeah. was yeah uh, obviously I knew of the Sex Pistols but yeah. um, uh, I didn't I didn't know like what Maisie was saying I didn't know the you know the really what they meant to the world um, I thought of them as just being um, quintessential punk music, and which was very, you know, all about anger and disappointment and rage and wanting to scream and shout to wake the world up. But um, it was a lot more than that. It was, it was, it was about a whole movement, um, and and I think it was the first time it ever gone hand in hand with a particular style of fashion. I mean the the. The, the leather jackets of rock and roll, they were already around. Uh, this literally launched two things at the same time. Um, so it was like a double-pronged attack upon the world. Um, so it was art. It was um, uh, attack on society. It was um, a mixing up of music, which is, still resonates today in music, culture, and art, and fashion. So where did, where did you begin? Did, uh, did Danny give you a, a primer, for example, to, to pursue for this? I mean, there's quite a bit of footage around, uh, mm-hmm. and, and like Maisie said, we had a great team of researchers, and so we had a lot of archive footage, um, sound bites, a lot, a lot of imagery, um, uh, and and of course, most of them have written a book or two. Yes, with conflicting opinions and stories and, yeah. and claims. Because yeah. you have to wade through all that stuff yes, to get to the do. truth. Of course. And, but then, you know, we have our script. We have our fictionalized version of the, the, you know, retelling of this story. And it takes influence from everyone's retelling. But it's not a documentary and it's not what actually happened, but it's inspired by. And so it was really nice to kind of have this just overwhelming amount of inspiration. But then to go, okay, and what do we... Like what? What's you know? What scenes do we have to play with here? And what is the pace of the story that we're telling? And how can I knit all of this in, but also find something which is you know wholly brand new um, mm. and you know part of this TV show? Um, and it was it was it was nice. It took the pressure off in some ways. When you're approaching something like this and you're playing people who were who were real and who 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 lived lives. There must be a temptation as an actor to do impressions, but also to reject that and go your own your own way. Well, how did you fashion Jordan and how did you fashion Malcolm McLaren in these two iconic figures? Well, I really only wanted Jordan to be. Ha- I was lucky enough to meet Jordan and spend a lot yeah. of time with her, and she had a lot uh, a lot of control over my hair, makeup, and costume. And so for me, I just wanted to do something that she loved, and she gave me a lot of insight. And I guess it was probably a little closer to. You know, just just to the way that she wanted to be represented, that wasn't uh, the same for everyone. I mean, you didn't get to chat with Malcolm, so. No, I didn't, unfortunately. Malcolm died in 2011, mm-hmm. I think. 
um, sadly, far too young. Mm. Um, it'd be interesting to see what he thought of this. Yeah, I'm sure he had a. <laughs> we'd have something to say about it. Um, uh, but no, I mean, I think it's very important to not um, do an impression. Um, yeah. It's not uh, an impression show. It's it's we're, we're we're actors, and to point out what Maisie said before, it's there's all this archive stuff, which is uh, we could make a documentary with that, but this isn't a documentary. It is our tale of events, um, um, and so these are our versions of these characters. Um, but there is a certain responsibility that you're playing someone that really existed, and um, you're you're going down as kind of part of that archive in some way. There's a lot of people that will watch this and. Um, that will be what they think of as uh, Malcolm McLaren, which is yeah. just how how things go. Um, but ho- I mean, hopefully they'll be inspired to then you know look up the real Sex Pistols and really learn about the you know the, all the other details that we couldn't squeeze into the show. Mm. Um, but for me, it was very, you know so it always is very important to uh, make it come from a, a grounded place of authenticity, which is what punk was all about anyway. So it needs to come from uh, within me. So there's lots of details. Details uh, around <laughs> with Malcolm. <laughs> he hasn't left then, has he? <laughs> no, he's still he there. pops back every now and again because okay. he's just too good fun. Um, but no, his 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 voice, for example, is just um, you know, is, it took a while to to figure out exactly what to do with all that. Um, but I didn't want it to come across as a, as a technical performance. I wanted it to be real, and I think that's um, I think that's where people then kind of sympathise with a character is when they can see that it has um, a sense of reality and truth to it. Absolutely. And, and, and I think just looking today, I mean, even just hearing Malcolm seep in there just a bit, just a bit. And, and look at the way both of you are dressed today. There seems to be that these characters, that these people have had a direct influence on you. I feel really horribly underdressed. I have a terrible jacket on, a Star Wars t-shirt, and you guys are- You look wonderful. Uh, well, thank you very much, Maisie. But you know, we, we both know. It's giving Empire magazine. It is. It's, it, I'm Empire. I'm exactly. representing Empire. Exactly. You're very right? on brand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like painfully yeah. on brand. In fact. <laughs> but, but 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 Malcolm and Jordan have had an impact on you. I mean, there's even down to the you know, your eye makeup today, yeah, Maisie, is, is is very Jordan. Yeah, I mean, you know, using fashion as a polit- whether it be a political statement or just as a tool to change, you know, public perception. I've been trapped as the same character for so long and. Y- you know, it's very easy to feel like, oh, you know, I can do so much more. Like, why won't someone let me do something different? But mm. if you don't ever show anyone anything different, then it's hard for them to be able to picture you as as anything other than than what they're what they know you as. Of course. So, you know, I've been hugely inspired by Jordan and the impact that she had with her image, um, and you know, it's really inspired this next chapter of my career really I mean I don't know if that's just like a very self-centered thing to say about it all but I just I think that what she did was like very very powerful and it's a, it's a very important tool as an actor to that that I that I you know feel very grateful to to you have learned uh, it feels to me like obviously Danny directed all six episodes as well and it, it feels to me like Danny is the perfect director in, in that mm-hmm. way and that he's someone who over the years, I just feel has his reputation for for allowing actors freedom, but also really being able to zero in on something very specific to the mm-hmm. character and really help the performance, uh, which is a very long winded way of saying what was it like working with Danny Boyle. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. When we we had uh, we had a really long rehearsal period 
which was re- I mean particularly for the boys playing the, the you know the band um, they had to you know they had band camp so they said and uh, they had to go away and learn how to play because I mean every everything you hear is them playing live there, there's no backing tracks or anything um, there's no, no dubbing or miming yeah um, it's them really Blimey. playing live that day all, all singing all playing all dancing <laughs> wow. um, which is so impressive it really is um, it helped them with three chords I mean <laughs> yeah it, it, it does help I guess yeah at the same time yeah um, so I mean it was great in, so we, we had that chance to play in the rehearsal period wow, and to yeah. come up with ideas and experiment a bit and uh, so then when it came to walking onto set, we all felt pretty comfortable with ourselves, but also what other people were going to bring and so how we could, you know, bounce off of one another. And it was at that point that Danny kind of really zeroed in and um, pinched everything together. So we had this, you know, we were given, um, you know, a great rain to just do whatever we want. And then he would pull the reins in and, um, and, and neaten everything up and and mix it, mix it all together in a wonderful Danny Boyle-esque way <laughs> that God knows how he does it. And when those guys were doing the band camp, what were you guys doing? Were you, were you watching the stuff or were you... I was you... being cast at that yeah. point. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was doing auditions and yeah. sweating over whether or not I was going to make the cut. <laughs> but yeah, they were having a great time. Fair enough, excellent. And in terms of that, that fearlessness, I mean, amazing. there's an amazing introduction to Jordan in episode two, mm. which is all about her being a provocateur, but it's all about fearlessness as well and I imagine that there must have been conversations between you and Danny about going there and doing that and being fearless in the moment or or was Um, there not yeah I guess sort of I mean if with anything like that with any of those scenes it's always about the intention you know that the filmmaker has that the writer has or you know the character has um and jordan was never like a victim of her clothes and she was never subject to like discomfort you know in the way that she looked it was it was her own vision and it was her own statement and yeah. the way that she she dressed in fact made other people feel uncomfortable and that was that was the power behind it and so it didn't I'm sure if I had been anxious, nervous, not wanted to do it or whatever, then Danny would have absolutely given me his time and his, you know, reassurance or or even, you know, perhaps we would have done it differently. Um, but it never felt like I never felt uh, concerned in that way because um, I knew the place from from where it from which it came. And for Jordan, it was a statement, and I and I felt kind of kind of excited to to do that. It was felt powerful to walk on set, and either everyone just turns and can't stop looking at you, mm. or they don't know where to look and they feel really <laughs> uncomfortable. But like you know, it, it for me on the other side, I'd, I'd never been in a position of such such power. Yeah, <laughs> it was nice. I think you said uh, Jordan wasn't a victim of her own clothes, and that's exactly how I feel right now. <laughs> I feel so bad. I feel so underdressed. I've never felt so underdressed in all my life. No. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I've got to let you guys go, uh, but I think we've we got to give the listeners what they want, which is they want the Andy Circus Arancini story. <laughs> they want, I gave them a little taste I went, at the beginning. Okay, I went to the Empire Awards. Mm-hmm. I sat at my table, and it was kind of like one of the tables on the periphery, so I thought, you know, I, I'm not supposed to be here. No one cares that I'm 
yeah. And the table was basically empty. So I ate my little starter, which was an arancini ball, and then, you know, waited for 20 minutes and the table didn't fill up. So I ate the arancini ball from the place mat next to me and it ended up being Andy Circus. Uh, Andy Circus <laughs> walked in with his wife and children and, and um, I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I've eaten your arancini. And he didn't really laugh. So. <laughs> <laughs> he went, you'll never really... work in this town again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so sorry, Andy. You you Goldilocks Andy Circus. <laughs> you owe him an ball. I do. You absolutely did. Uh, amazing, <laughs> amazing. But uh, it, all's well, it ends well in the end. It all worked out nice in the end. Uh-huh. Uh, Thomas, Maisie, thanks so much for your Thank time. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Okay, so that was Maisie Williams and Thomas Birdie Sangster. And now it is time for us three giggling co-pilots of such lethal cunning to get into Pistol. This, in a weird way, seems like it's long overdue because this is Danny Boyle, one of our greatest directors and a man who is whose entire movie career has been entwined, intrinsically entwined with music, finally doing a big old music biopic but stretched over six episodes, so it really gives, a, gives him a chance to flex his muscles. About darn time, I'm saying. Yes, I would agree with you. Um, I had the the pleasure of speaking with him for the magazine, and um, it does make you really assess those kind of connections between music and his films. Like, I don't think you'd have Train Spotting without Born Slippy, you know, that amazing uh, score from 28 Days Later, which is just used in everything now mm. like i'm gonna i'm gonna say all saints for the beach because that was a significant thing for yes. young, young beth webb that was uh pure, pure shores right absolute banger yeah so i always feel like that relationship has been very very important like steve jobs and the liberties he's got such a strong eye for or ear yeah, yeah, and I. It's just a strong fella. Uh, His hand ear coordination. You don't hear people talking about that. You hear people talk about hand eye coordination. Not so much hand ear, but I suspect I suspect old Danny has a lot of very good hand ear coordination. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you're completely right. I think it's been a long time coming. Uh, he's obviously waited for the opportune moment and. Uh, I know that he grew up absolutely worshipping this band and, you know, was just so aware of how they signalled a big, you know, a big change in Britain at a time when when young people especially really needed it. And mm. yes, yeah, so he's bided his time and, and this feels like a like a perfect match. It's interesting, of course, isn't it, that uh, he's coming off this. It's not a, it wasn't a biopic uh, per se, but he is coming off this off the back of Yesterday. Mm. Which, of course, was another big music-driven movie, and which which kind of reinvented the Beatles a little bit. And then the Sex Pistols is a really interesting thread that runs through. We should say we've seen we've all three of us have seen the first two episodes of Pistol. Mm. There are six episodes that are going to be hitting Disney Plus, um, and we've seen the first two. And there's a thread running through the show that comes particularly in within the Pistols from their bassist Glenn Matlock about how great the Beatles were and how violently everyone else in the, in the band <laughs> rejects the Beatles. And, you know, and they even come up with a, with a, with a, a funny little sobriquet for themselves uh, as, a, as a band, which plays on the Fab Four. That's all I'm going to say on that one. Um, and of course, Danny Boyle is then going into this from something that celebrates the Beatles and now something that celebrates the Pistols. Jimbo, it just seems to me that like that's a, a, a lovely little run there. Lovely little one-two punch. 
It is indeed. Now, I'm obviously a music philistine. There is a reason why I'm not a contributing editor to Mojo Magazine. So I came to this quite cold. I was quite interested by this. So Craig Pierce, obviously longtime collaborator of like Baz Luhrmann, when he's sort of like adapted this, he's taken this story from Steve Jones' point of view. Steve Jones, yes. of course, being the Sex Pistols guitarist. Now, mm. philistine that I am, I've heard of Johnny Rotten. I've heard of Sid Vicious. I have never heard of Steve Jones at <laughs> really? all. Really? Really? <laughs> Absolutely never heard of him. So... So I was like, so when this started, I was I was quite thrown because obviously, and then Steve Jones. When when we begin this story, it's not Sex Pistols; it's a different band, and he's the singer, not the guitarist, and doesn't know how to play the guitar. So actually, I got quite drawn into this story from a purely just like I feel this is a big gap in my cultural knowledge, and mm. this is filling that gap, and I am grateful for this information. <laughs> But it's really compelling. Like, so Toby Wallace, who plays Steve Jones, Toby Wallace, it has to be said, is an incredible actor. Yes, absolutely incredible. Yeah. He's Australian. And he's Australian, which makes him doubly incredible. As Born this, in England, yeah. raised in Australia. So I just let the, when, when you see the show and you see how good his accent is, yeah. it'll astound you. It's very, very good. And he's incredibly charismatic mm. as well. And, you know, and you've got sort of like his story. It's, he's got his tragic backstory as well. And it feels like this, this band, like this opportunity is a lifeline for him. It's quite interesting how he gets sucked into this whole culture and also how this culture sort of intersects with this very specific shop, the sex shop, Vivian Westwood shop, uh, which he runs with Malcolm McLaren and, uh, and how you can see sort of the, the germ of this, you know, this cultural movement starting. Do you know what I mean? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, yeah I, it's interesting that they have, because I, I saw him in baby teeth, which was a really, really oh. wonderful, so good. So mm. good. And he really held as a, you know, Ben Mendelsohn's in that, Eliza Scanlon. It's a really wonderful kind of um, reinvigorates, if you can even call it kind of that teen cancer kind of strand of movie. It kind of brings a completely new kind of turn to it. And he was kind of the big breakout from, from that film. Mm. And so I was really excited because he's got this kind of erratic energy to him, doesn't he? Like this really, he's a real live wire. I feel like he's kind of always, always moving about. He's never staying still, but he's always watching and sort of speculating and things as well. So I think the casting for him is, mm. is really spot on. The thing with Steve Jones, obviously, I mean, as James says, he, he's not the most memorable of that ensemble. Like, James has never heard of him, although I wouldn't say that's necessarily I mean, uh, yeah. Steve Jones' fault. Uh, but, um, yeah, the fact that he is, you know, the, the, the kind of protagonist of this, but also... He's the person watching the Sex Pistols. And I think that it's a very specific kind of Venn diagram there where it's like to be at the center of where you've, you can embody that punk spirit, spirit, but also be the person watching. Yeah, you, you can't have everybody being the front man. So the fact that he can maintain that kind of, you know, supporting role within that ensemble, but still be really charismatic and interesting. I think it, mm. it takes a real skill. It makes for a more, more interesting perspective, isn't it? Because there's there's an element of sort of not quite tragedy to his character. Although, frankly, there is some of that as well. Yes. But the fact that he's mm. displaced to make way for Johnny Rotten, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and how that all takes place is interesting. And, of course, it does cost old Wally Nightingale his spot in the lineup uh, with that wee English fella, Dylan Dillon <laughs> from Derry Girls. Yes. Very pleased to see him in there. That's that's presumably the inciting incident that makes him run off to <laughs> to Northern Ireland. And the timelines don't quite match up. Not quite. But I'm, I'm, maybe he's his dad. Maybe Wally Nightingale is the wee English fella's dad in, in Derry Girls, and that's oh why. Oh my god! That's why we never see him. Uh, Dylan Dylan Llewellyn playing his own dad. That'd be that'd be incredible. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, going back to Baby Teeth, which I thoroughly uh, recommend. Uh, you can see why they maybe 
looked at him for Steve Jones um, mm. because they're both kind of wrong side of the tracks ruffians who, in a slightly less empathetic show or film, would be the ne'er-do-well bad guy. Mm. Uh, but there's a humanity and a heart mm. to both those characters. So you can see, you can see that there's there's something going on behind the eyes with Steve Jones. He's he's more intelligent than he lets other people know. Uh, he's more human than other people know, and he's got a warmer side than than he wants other people to know. And uh, I think it's a really really fascinating and an, an excellent performance, uh, in fact, uh, because you you need you need I think someone to to hold on to. You need someone to to hang your hat on. Definitely. Uh, throughout, throughout a show like this. Uh, but Steve Jones, I mean, he is, you know, after he's, I think he still dabbles in music, but uh, he, if I'm right in thinking, he owns or owned a couple of high profile restaurants or bars in LA. I'm pretty sure oh. I once uh, went out for a night in a Steve Jones restaurant, but oh, he wasn't, he, he wasn't there. He wasn't there the night I, I popped in. Um, he heard I was in town and <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> ran for the hills. Ran for the yeah, ran for the hills. hills. <laughs> yeah, lock, lock up your Coke Zero. Here comes Hewitt. <laughs> That's what he was thinking. Um, but yeah, he's he's really interesting because uh, I didn't know a huge a huge deal about the the pistols either uh, going into this. I think I probably knew more than Jimbo, whose musical tastes um, are 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 very very interesting and um, and pivot wildly. I mean, he's uh, yeah, he's a broad church, Jimbo. Uh, he idolizes Taylor Swift. <laughs> But equally, that, that might be overstating it slightly. But yes, well, I say idolizes to an almost uncomfortable degree. Uh, Taylor Swift <laughs> lawyers might have to get involved at some point. Uh, you do love Taylor Swift. You love a bit of. A, a I, I like the two albums she released during lockdown. Yes. Well, there you go. I don't okay. to the Idolize. That sounds to me like yeah. idolize. Yeah. <laughs> but yet, there's a flip side to that coin. Jimbo and I have been to an audio slave concert uh, have, yeah. together. Listen, how old I am! Concert. <laughs> I went to a concert. I went to a live musical event. And a live audio musical event. Slave. Afterwards, we played one of the forty-fives. Yes, we did a certain <laughs> amount of moshing, and then we left to get a bite to eat. Yes, but uh, but the, the pistols kind of passed me by. Uh, you know, I love Anarchy in the UK, and I mm. I like Sid Fish's version of My Way and uh, and all that stuff. Uh, but but I didn't really know much about them apart from. Things like their appearance on, on the Bill Grundy show, which is infamous, um, and I believe is actually recreated in episode four. I haven't seen episode four yet, but I believe is recreated in episode four. Uh, and so it was fascinating just there learning all little bumps along the way. You know, different guitarist. You know, Steve Jones was the original singer. He was the guy who brought the band together, and then he had crippling stage fright mm. and couldn't do it. Couldn't play the guitar to save his life and then had to do it, had to learn how to play guitar in order to stay in his own band because Malcolm <laughs> McLaren basically you know, put put his foot down and said, no, 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 you have to learn to play guitar. Otherwise, you're no longer going to be in the band that I have now dubbed the Sex Pistols because that was the extent of Malcolm McLaren's influence, the way, way it grew. And then, of course, he learned to play guitar rudimentarily, if that's even a word, uh, in a epic five-day session in which he ingested all kinds of Substances Coke Zero was not among them. <laughs> no, to his uh, to his detriment. Yes, yes. Can you imagine what he would have. What would he have achieved if he had had Coke Zero? Um, but uh, but Beth, were you are you in the same boat? Did you know? Did you know a little about the Sex Pistols apart from the fact that they had one album and then they Johnny Rotten is this incredible iconic 
front man? <laughs> well, as a as a mere twelve year old Chris, I do have to say that uh, <laughs> <laughs> the punk scene. <laughs> I was not waiting for the enemy magazine to drop on a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> um, Fair enough. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, well, for me, oddly, it began with watching Nevermind the Buscogs. So obviously, <laughs> you know, Friday night television and enjoying, you know, the Simon Alstills, the Mark Lamar, who, by the way, is from Swindon, same as me, um, watching. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know all, all the Swindon famouses. Um, so he doesn't sound like he's from Swindon either. No. Well, I, yeah, I've stamped it down. It comes out occasionally. I think you sound like you're from Wales and he sounds like he's <laughs> a, a, a cockney boy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I, I, I obviously, as a, as a child, watched uh, Nevermind the Buscogs and then... And then learned why it was called that. And then, and then, but then I say that obviously they were such a seminal, not just band, but like they were the beginning of a movement. So I'm sure all the, you know, from the like prestigious bands to the really daft bands I've listened to over my entire like lifespan have in some way or another been shaped by the Sex Pistols. So to say that I know it through Friday night primetime television is <laughs> perhaps selling them a little bit too short. Um, and, you know, they, they were so significant to so many, not just, you know, this is what I was talking to Danny Boyle about. It wasn't just about the fact that they shaped music. They were a beacon of hope for a lot of working class people, a lot of frustrated people, young or otherwise, you know, um, that just felt violently frustrated with how they were being undercut by the government at the time. And, mm. and suddenly these spitting, snarling lads from the arse end of London were you know, getting on a stage and singing about it in a way that hadn't hadn't been done before. You know, what they bottled was so new and interesting. And so, you know, I'm sure listening to even today, like new music will carry some iteration of that. You know, they they changed the whole cultural landscape in Britain, at least. But I would I would say far beyond that as well. Do you think there rock and roll, punk, non-conformist, iconoclastic spirit can most accurately be summed up in the grammatical error in the title of their debut album? For you, yes. <laughs> it's like, guys, guys, surely it's here are the Sex Pistols. Sorry, sorry to be that guy, but you know. You're not sorry at all, James. You're not even a little bit sorry to be that guy. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's, it's debatable with bands, isn't it? It's debatable because because I've I've heard people say that bands can be singular and mm. also plural. So yeah. you know, so if you're if you're taking the band as a singular, here is the Sex Pistols, the band. <laughs> yeah. But if you're saying it as plural, if they are collectively Sex Pistols, then it's they. Here are the Sex Pistols. Yeah. But we should definitely get into this in greater detail because I think, I think it's a, it's I think, a key I think issue. We should spend, I think we should spend another <laughs> 10, 15 minutes on this yeah, in particular. So. Uh, no, there's because there, you know, if I I'll, I'll say here's REM. I don't. Yeah. Say, I don't say yeah. here are. But I think so. so you get into that grammatical thing when the band has a plural, so as if they're, they're they are Sex Pistols. That <laughs> oh each one God. of them is an individual James Sex Pistol. a red pen to anarchy. <laughs> 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 I think it's what the Pistols would have wanted. That's, I like to yeah. think I am the man in this particular instance, and they are damning me. For goodness sake, if they did ever do a second album, it would be called "I Think You'll Find." <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> <it. laughs> <laughs> is that like James's face with yeah. like? Yeah. Crowns 
great like spray painted on it. I hope they do. I hope <laughs> yeah. they do now because because uh, Jimbo said their debut album, but of course, famously, they only made one album. It's yeah. their only album. Uh, never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. Uh, and a, a follow up to that because they have got back together over the years, um, and then split up again. Mm. I don't think there's going to be a second album, but you're right. <laughs> if there were. I think you'll find it's the Sex Pistols. <laughs> would be a great name. Yeah. Also, also, not to labour this point at all, but they include the definite article, the Sex Pistols, which implies there's a plurality there, oh not a singular. Gosh. Otherwise, it would be never mind the bollocks. Here's Sex Pistols, which would but be more accurate. Pistols implies pl- plurality as well, doesn't it? It, it does. Just but if you're saying the pistols. name of the band is plural Sex Pistols, but it's a singular with a plural as part of the title, you could get away with the here's. But I think the definite article then undercuts that. So I think that. Right there, that definite article is the source of their punk spirit. Do you think they had this conversation? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Do I think Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious sat down and debated the pros and cons of the definite article vis-a-vis the plurality yeah, of the band name? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Without a doubt. Absolutely. Without a doubt that happened. Do you know what? We just don't have enough dangling superlatives in these lyrics. I think we need to go back round again. <laughs> Silly, <laughs> silly man, James. Oh, silly man. I embody the punk movement, and I think we can all agree that. Um, you, yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the four-letter word I was thinking of, but uh, it'll do. Uh, but <laughs> but um, so, have you inspired by Pistol? Have you immersed yourself in the punk scene? Have you have you gone back and checked out? Never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols, or here are the Sex Pistols, or here were, there were the we Sex need Pistols. To stop this. Yeah, I, I will say that Steve Jones manages in five drug-fueled days to become better at the guitar than I've managed to in two years. So that's, uh, that's quite an impressive achievement, Steve. You made me feel terrible about myself. So thank you, thank you for that. I mean, getting better at guitar is is maybe a, a little generous, uh, because one of the things about the the Sex Pistols, the punk movement, um, and it, it changed very quickly as well. Mm. But that they they showed a whole bunch of their contemporaries and bands who were later influenced by them. That you all you needed was three chords and an attitude. That's all, that's literally all you needed. You didn't need necessarily great musicianship or you didn't need to know which end of your guitar stick was which uh, or any of that stuff you just needed to turn up be angry yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and strum that guitar like you meant it or hit, hit the drum kit like you meant it yeah. uh, and you know they're, they're hugely influential as well in terms of inspiring the punk movement on both sides and, and they're not solely responsible for the punk movement uh, you know and, and and this show I think it goes out of its way to to show that as well that it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just them that there were other people uh, mm. who were who were doing stuff and doing vital and important work but it inspired the punk movement on both sides of the Atlantic and then obviously that you know the tendrils that reach out from the sex pistols uh, go all the way up to the spice girls and I think <laughs> you know I look at the sex pistols and I wonder if we could do the same baby posh sporty <laughs> ginger oh and scary my God. <laughs> with them just obliterating the legacy with every second of this podcast. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but let's go back to that uh, that idea of three chords and a snarl. That's that's uh, that's all you need. Uh, and you know, I think one of the interesting things is that the the first two episodes they're not fully formed by any stretch of the imagination by the end of it. But there's a there's a gig that they do in episode two where you really begin to see how they brought something new to the scene in that you had, you were, you know, the, one, th- one of the interesting things that Danny Boyle does is that he will juxtapose 
bands who were maybe seen as passe then and who the Sex Pistols were a reaction to and a reaction against bands like yes there's a there's a really funny bit where he's like intercutting between footage of Rick Wakeman going to town on his his very prog rock keyboard and then you get the the, the snarling spittle of the of the Sex Pistols or uh, even the end of the first episode not to give too much away but Johnny Rotten comes into into uh, comes onto the scene at some point and uh, when Johnny Rotten auditioned for the Sex Pistols he was famously wearing a Pink Floyd t-shirt mm. that had that he had then daubed the words I hate above Pink Floyd and that as much as his vocal talents because again he didn't have <laughs> Any, many. He wasn't yeah. Pavarotti, was he? He wasn't Pavarotti. He wasn't Pavarotti. I think we can all agree that. <laughs> but he had something. He had. He had an attitude, mm. and uh, and just you know, daubing, you know, I hate on a t-shirt, which I would never do. I'd never deface a t-shirt. Um, that got him. Uh, got him the gig. But also, they were sticking two fingers up at the establishment, and the establishment for them were bands like Pink Floyd and bands like Yes mm. and bands like The Beatles. Mm. But but what's interesting about this is that, you know, th- it's not like they were an organic reaction to the state of music or even the state of society. Like, it, to a certain extent, like, they feel as artificially created as the Spice Girls because Malcolm McLaren set about to create a very specific look and a very specific sound and a very specific attitude, and he constructed it from people who fit that mould. And to be fair, that's exactly how the Spice Girls got made. So, you know... <laughs> Hey, we're drawing the knots together. I, I may be onto something with this. <laughs> you are onto something. I'm, I'm really. See- I'm, I'm now. I'm now a Spice Girl anarchy in the UK truther. What's happening? <laughs> if only they'd made a film. If only they'd made Sex Pistols World or yeah, something like that. That would have been. That would have been amazing. Beth, you, you've been you've been increasingly appalled the more we've we've drawn this analogy. Increasingly quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think about that? About the uh, the 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 way that the uh, the attitude of the Sex Pistols was a reaction to what was going before, not just politically, but also musically. Uh well, it just turned the whole thing on its head, didn't it? it, it unashamedly, so it felt like simultaneously this band had everything to prove and also nothing to prove whatsoever. They were so unashamedly who they were, but at the same time you know, did still hold that want to reach people who were like-minded and yeah, again, revolutionary. It wasn't, they weren't technical musicians by any stretch. They just came together and thrashed about and saw what came out. And yeah, they, they kind of through that simplicity really showed that you don't have to be talented musicians. You don't have to be academics. You don't have to be technically minded you don't even have to be especially collaborative. If anything, the fact that they aren't a harmonic band works incredibly well for them. So it, they did just show exactly what you could do with the right attitude, the right commitment to the same cause. And uh, mm. yeah, just this real, real appetite for anarchy. Uh, and it, in it, the UK? In, <laughs> in the elsewhere. UK. In, in uh <laughs> The Spice World. Um, so oh it my just, it, uh, yeah, I think uh, it just awakened a lot of people's perspective of, of what it means to be a musician. Actually, do you have to be to be able to actually play music to be a musician? You know, it, it, yeah, mm. I think it was uh, it was it was revolutionary in, in more ways than one. I think one of the interesting things about them is that um, perhaps the most musically gifted member of the of the group. Was was Glenn Matlock their bassist? Mm. 
and they kind of drummed him out a little bit. You know, they they uh, they replaced him with Sid Vicious, and then obviously after Sid Vicious died and everything that happened with Sid Vicious and and uh, and Nancy Spungen is documented in this show as well, of course, as uh, Sid and Nancy. Uh, but Glenn Matlock rejoined the band for their various reunion tours. But it seems, again, it seems like it's not, that's a deliberate thing. Like the most musically gifted person and also the one who wouldn't stop prattling on about the Beatles was the one that they jettisoned. Yeah, but I think that, again, he didn't fit that punk spirit. Like he felt like the most sort of like mainstream of them all, even though he was the only actual, and maybe partially because he was a talented musician, but in terms of his influences and his look and his feel and the fact that he wore knitwear, do you know what I mean? Like he didn't feel, (laughs) he didn't feel particularly (laughs) punk. You know, uh, and and I think I guess that that had a lot to do with, it. and then they replace him with Sid Vicious, who again is part of this artificial construction of what McLaren wanted this band to be, um, which was a you know he had a, <laughs> I won't repeat it here, but he you know he wanted the band to do a very specific thing and to make a very p- specific political statement, and I'm not sure yeah. M&S Knitwear did that. So no, I I don't think it did. There's also a really interesting uh, a sequence where where Glenn Matlock is. Uh, trying to teach Steve Jones how to play the guitar. And he's yelling out the chords, the actual <laughs> names of the chords. And Steve Jones is just not having any of it. He's going, F diminished seventh. And Steve Jones is just an F. It's just an F. <laughs> Which is as someone who, like Jimbo, has has dabbled in, in learning how to play the guitar very, very badly uh, for a number of years. Is Yeah, because you just call it an F, mate. Just call it an F. F and a C. I couldn't pick an F diminished seven out of a lineup. I really couldn't. So... <laughs> Or a D sus two, no idea. That is why you fail. Yeah. Open chords for me, thanks. <laughs> but um, but you know, it's it's really exciting that Danny Boyle is making this. And um, can we talk about how he's approached this visually? There's an awful lot of uh, archive footage. There's an awful lot of mm, there uh, is you know to, to conjure a sense of time and place, which I think is really really interesting. And uh, you know, he's he's someone who's always struck me as a slightly punkish filmmaker. In a way, he's always someone who's like kind of bucking against the system a little bit. You know, uh, there are reports, of course, that he turned down a knighthood and he's never really made a, a mainstream blockbuster. And when he has dabbled in that world, it's never really quite worked out for, her, for him, whether it's Alien Resurrection or No Time to Die. He's never quite fit in. So he seems like someone who has a really punky attitude. Except he is a stickler for grammar. So, you know, he is a stickler for grammar. <laughs> I'm going to cut this conversation off right now. No, you, you, you need to stop with this. Uh, but I think the, the simple answer to that is he was a punk. He was a punk. He grew up with the Sex Pistols. He did wait for his enemy to drop on a Thursday to find out what was going. He did rush out to buy that one album and felt like the gates were just opening up in terms of artistic potential. He was like besotted with them. So it's not surprising that he's always kind of kicked against the grain when it comes to filmmaking. Um, And always, yeah, I mean, could you really think of a more punk film that's not actually to do with punks than Trainspotting? Mm. Like that whole, that everything that film represents is in the spirit of punk. Um, And uh, I think, yeah, it's like I said, this is this just feels like it's been this this is the the show, this is the subject that has lured him into doing a, a music biopic for good reason. He always was a punk, he probably always will be a punk. 
I mean, I'm sure he has a much nicer house now than he did huh. <laughs> before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he uh, he always he always has. I mean, I haven't seen Yesterday, but the the last film of his I saw was the Steve Jobs film, and that was such a wild kind of. It was almost like a like a visual scrapbook of. Uh, mm. of that man in that industry. And, you know, you've got the libertines and, you know, visually coloring outside of the lines and archive footage and Britpop and, and all this to talk about Steve Jobs. He's He's got such an outlandish way of doing it. And, oh my goodness, this is, this is a Danny Boyle joint from the off, isn't it? It's instantly mm. from that opening sequence where um, Toby Wallace is, uh, there's a sort of, very ramshackle heist isn't there with some some stolen equipment and uh instantly it's aspect ratios all over the shop it's quick fire editing it's it's 12 different styles of camera angle it's it's it almost makes you feel a bit sick (laughs) it's very propulsive and shaky and and constantly moving about and discombobulating and Mm. and that is just him to a t he's just very frenetic and crazy and and uh i hope he never changes because he's i think he's trying to obviously capture the the energy of the time it's a snapshot of the energy of the time and energy's very tricky to capture on cinema and make it feel authentic. And there's some recreations of early Sex Pistols con- concert. There I, am. there I am again, betraying my age. <laughs> so I've just come back from a Fal Dunigan doubleheader at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, a lovely skiffle band is on later on. Um, you know, if we, if we're the Sex Pistols gig early on. They're rubbing their their noses. Uh, you know, they're rubbing the establishment's noses, and even like a younger band. Uh, you know, or or a very very different band, a band that's more interested in melody and not necessarily just, uh, you know, attacking people with noise and turning the amps up to eleven or six 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 if you want to. Um, they're a band that was very very much attacking people with attitude, really, and attacking people with with anger and articulating what I think the great majority of young people in the in the UK at the time couldn't articulate. Um, and I think he's really trying to to capture that. But as I said earlier on, it's not just about the Sex Pistols. It's about the people around them as well. Uh, Chrissy Hind is a very important character in this. She mm. She's uh, someone who got involved uh, with Steve Jones romantically. And it's about her discovering who she is as an artist as well. Susie Sue, I believe, is in one of the later, later episodes, or at least one of the later episodes. Um, and and then of course, you have the likes of Vivian Westwood, you have the likes of Malcolm McLaren, and you have the likes of, of Jordan, who um, uh, is not the Jordan that we know, <laughs> but a very different Jordan. Uh, Jordan is played by Maisie Williams, as you heard. And if you heard the interview I did with Maisie Williams and Thomas Brody Sangster, I talked about fearlessness and a, and and a really great character introduction to Jordan, yeah. which happens at the beginning of episode two. And for my money, it's one of the great character introductions uh, I can remember in in recent years. Uh, so Jordan was someone who, uh, she was a provocateur, she was a muse, she was a model, uh, and she was someone who didn't give a tinker's cuss about what people thought of her. Mm. And so the, the opening of this episode is um, Jordan riding around, I want to say Brighton, but I might be wrong about that, but certainly somewhere in England. There you go. There's my geography <laughs> lessons for you. Seaford. She's from Seaford, Seaford in East Sussex. Yes. Okay. There you go. So that, that might be, be okay. All right. It's close to Brighton. I, was, I wasn't too far off. Um, 
so she's riding around uh, wearing a see-through plastic top with nothing on underneath, and and she's riding her cycle almost la- almost Lady Godiva in it, but not quite through this town. And Boyle really accentuates the kind of outrage, some of it faux outrage from people who cannot believe what you're seeing. Uh, as she rides through this town, but also there's there's a, a little nod to carry on, I think, as well with some people's reactions, <laughs> which he's which he's he's having a bit of a, a wink with it. It's a great introduction, but it also says how much punk challenged the status quo, including, mm. of course, status quo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that that incident on the train where she gets uh, essentially asked to move to first class, that's apparently a thing that really happened. Uh, but someone tried to physically throw her off the train, so one of the conductors uh, moved her to first class so she wouldn't upset the other passengers, making them very, very stressed out. Yes. Um, I also love the fact that she went into the sex shop originally to get a job, and there wasn't a position, so she got a job in Harrods instead. And I can't <laughs> quite make that picture work, but, you know. Yeah, and Maisie Williams is great in the role. Really, really she great. Is. For anyone who's who, who knows her only as Arya Stark, yeah. Well, she had a whole streak of punk to her character in Game of Thrones. I feel like she really does hold that spirit in whatever she does. She's very formidable, very forthright, and mm. it's just perfect. It's perfect casting. That big sheet of like stiff vertical hair, and she's kind of plummy and just doesn't doesn't care whatsoever what people think of her she was a real tra- uh, trailblazer um, a tinker's cuss beth a, a tinker's, tinker's cuss. cuss she doesn't give one <laughs> yes exactly that uh but yeah that that's uh, one of my favorite pieces of casting in the in the show next to toby wallace i think she's great and i'm glad she gets to really flex that muscle um in that kind of scene definitely yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a bold statement, not yeah. just you know for her, but to open the episode with that. Yeah, she's yeah. she's a fascinating character. I read up on her a little bit. Did you know that after she left the whole punk scene, she returned to Seaford and bred Burmese cats and worked as a veterinary nurse. Oh, I did not know that. Hero. I did not. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's amazing. Hero. She passed away this year. Yeah, she's just she just passed away in in April of this year, as you heard. Maisie Williams got to uh, got to meet her and. And it was very inspired by her. So, uh, in case people didn't, um, you know, it wasn't a visual podcast, it wasn't a visual interview, but uh, both Thomas Brody Sangster and Maisie Williams were dressed in ways that I would say were very much inspired by the characters they play. Mm-hmm. So, Maisie Williams was dressed in something that I would imagine Jordan would have worn or even approved of. Her eye makeup was very similar to it is in the show. And Thomas Brody Sangster was very, very suave and debonair, but with a bit of flamboyance, a bit of flair going on. And I blundered him with my Star Wars t shirt, you know, looking. You know, sweaty just off a train, but um, but it, it's uh, it, it's interesting how much the, the the roles have bled into Lem in real life and how much they took from from meeting these people because it's an amazing cast as well. So, is there anyone else we should give a shout out to from the from the cast? I mean, Anson Boone is tasked with an awful lot as Johnny Rotten. Like that is a very very specific stage presence that's quite hard to duplicate. So he gave that a, a fair crack, which is amazing. Um, Tallulah Riley, who I haven't yes. seen her in anything in ages, but she's great as Vivian Westwood. Um, I'd love to know if Vivian Westwood has seen this. I'm sure she hmm. would be very flattered by by that iteration of her. Um, but yeah, they're definitely, they, yeah, they had a real life of cast. I think it's always exciting seeing who gets cast in a Danny Boyle project. Because of course... He was there at the start of Ewan McGregor's career. He was at the start of 
certainly to my knowledge, like Killian Murphy of 28 Days Later, he's always got a really smart... Dev Patel? Dev Patel, of course. I mean, obviously, it's the casting director, but his projects always boast really... Um, innovative casting and the people that are in there. I mean, some of them already like Maisie Williams have got an established career, but it's always really exciting mm. to see who kind of shows up in a, in a Danny Boyle project because they could well have a, a big buzzy career ahead of them. So it's always great to see that. Absolutely. And it's going to be great to see how, you know, characters like Sid Fishes and, and Nancy, you know, I, th- I think there's a later episode that is very much dedicated to the, the, the sad tale of their relationship and which ended in tragic, tragic circumstances when, when Nancy Spongeon was murdered. Um, and there's an episode called Nancy and Sid, which obviously inverts the Alex Cox title. Uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated to see where this goes mm. and fascinated to see how it tackles things like the Bill Grundy TV show, where if you don't know what it is, they went on uh, a live talk show, a live UK chat show with a, a host called Bill Grundy, who, and they swore, I think it was Steve Jones who swore, and Bill Grundy basically then just challenged them to do their worst. What shock me, shock the audience, shock the nation. And obviously, it was uh, late 1970s. So, millions of people are watching this and they got record complaints. This was like mid tea time, I think, maybe <laughs> tea time or, or early evening, certainly. And people weren't ready for that, that kind of language. Um, so, I'm fascinated to see how Danny Boyle and Craig Pierce depict episodes like that. And then, obviously, the inevitable breakup mm. uh, when they go to the States and things get a little bit too much for them. And, it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. But you'll get a chance, of course, to see how it all unfolds because Pistol is hitting Disney Plus as of this week, as of this Friday, the 27th of May. And then you'll get new episodes every single week until there are no more episodes to drop. That's how it works. And how it works as well for this podcast is that we bring it to a conclusion. Never mind the Pistol. Here's the Empire Pilot TV podcast collaboration coming to an end. It's time to say goodbye to my two co-pilots of such lethal cunning. Neither of whom have really bothered with squadcast names today, which are, which is making me very very sad. This isn't the punk attitude, guys. But it's time to say goodbye to Beth Webb, simply known as Beth Wales's finest. <laughs> I can be the be- the Beth Pistols. There we go. I mean, that's not great, is it? <laughs> and this is why I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. you for having me. No, no, enjoy can what's left of it. <laughs> and it's time to say goodbye to the pedant's pedant, James Dyer. It's the James Dyer. Sorry, sorry, the article sorry. Is, is crucial there. <laughs> oh, you're a definite article, all right, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and it's time for me to say goodbye as well. Uh, I am the You Anarchy K. Anarchy in the UK. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. It's good. It's good. Excellent joke. Well done. I'm off to a mainline a six pack of Coke Zero and have a go at learning the guitar again. I'm going to nail that A chord if it kills me. And A is like the simplest chord to learn as well. But I can't play A. I can't play A. And bar chords? Forget about it, brother. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.